Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Adam Cronin, and today we're discussing Bitcoin basics, five steps to navigate the Bitcoin rabbit hole. I've had a lot of friends and family and people ask me various questions about Bitcoin, how to get started with Bitcoin. So I thought I'd do an episode on what I currently recommend for getting started down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. So these are the five steps in summary. Step one is get off zero. Step two is hold your own keys. Step three, run your own node. Step four, mine Bitcoin or build a non-KYC stack. And step five is get on zero. So I will explain each of these steps in today's episode and I'll also provide some bonus Bitcoin resources at the end. So step one is to get off zero. This means get off zero Bitcoin. And there's a tweet from Michael Saylor where he's congratulating the president of El Salvador, Nayib Bukele, on buying his first million Satoshis. And he says, congratulations, the first million sats is always the hardest. And I think this is very true. I think it's true that the first Satoshi is the hardest, getting off zero, taking that first step to buy just a little bit of Bitcoin. And a lot of people will say, oh, Bitcoin is so expensive now. It's too late. I missed it. Can you see the price of Bitcoin is already $30,000? Well, you can buy a fraction of a Bitcoin. In fact, with $1, you can buy today 2,712 Satoshi. So anyone can get off zero. It's very easy to own a little bit of Bitcoin. And that's a good way to learn about it because just by having a small amount, you keep an eye on it, you'll learn about it, and you will inevitably go deeper down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. As far as which apps or exchanges I recommend for buying your first Bitcoin, the most important thing is that you actually are able to transfer the Bitcoin from that exchange once you buy it. So I don't recommend Robinhood because that's more like buying paper Bitcoin. You can't actually send it to your friend. You can't actually send it to a merchant. You can't actually send it to cold storage, to a hardware wallet. All you can do is buy and sell it on the exchange like a stock. So rather than doing that, I would recommend buying Bitcoin from one of these exchanges where you actually can take it off of the exchange once you've bought it. So Strike is the first one I'd recommend. This probably has the lowest fees of any of the exchanges. It was created by Jack Maulers. It is really intended to be just a great exchange for anyone to use. It's not intended to be an insanely profitable company. Um, it's not intending to do much more than Bitcoin. It is a Bitcoin only app. So I very much like this app. That said, it does tend to have pretty small maximums, at least initially. So it's hard to buy very large amounts from Strike. Cash App is probably the next app I recommend most often. This is the company where Jack Dorsey is CEO. They also are Bitcoin only and they just have a great app and you definitely have bigger maximums as far as how much you can buy on Cash App. They do have maximums for how much you can take out and how much you can withdraw to cold storage. So that's the only annoying thing about Cash App is I think it's something like $1,000 a week or $2,000 a week you can withdraw from Cash App. So uh, that's the only downside, but certainly one of the better Bitcoin buying apps out there. And then Coinbase is another solid app. This probably has the most credibility in the space. A lot of hardcore Bitcoiners don't like it because it has a lot of altcoins on it. It's not a Bitcoin only app. And it also tends to have higher fees than the other apps. That said, it is very tried and true. And 
I would say it's the best as far as maximums. You can buy the largest amount on Coinbase because it has the most liquidity. They don't have very stringent rules about withdrawing it. So Coinbase is a solid, solid way to go. And just in general, I would say if you are considering getting off zero, considering buying your first Satoshis, I would say just do whatever is easiest. It's, it's more important that you start on the path of sovereignty and start down the road of buying a little bit of Bitcoin, which with whatever app is most convenient for you, uh, rather than worrying so much about getting it on the right app to start out with, as long as you are able to take it off of that exchange uh, once you've bought it. And the next question with getting off zero, uh, you know, with buying your first Bitcoin is, well, how do you exactly go about that? Are you supposed to just put all of your money in right away? Or do you dollar cost average into it? So let's say you have $1,000 that you want to invest in Bitcoin. Is it better to just buy $1,000 worth of Bitcoin today and hold on to it? Or is it better to buy $100 a week over the next 10 weeks and dollar cost average into Bitcoin in case there is some volatility with the price going down or the price going up? Well, I looked at several different studies where they actually analyzed real world financial data and they did an analysis of if you were someone who invested the same amount of money, either with perfect timing, meaning you bought at the exact lowest lows, or with lump sum, meaning you bought everything at the very beginning, or if you dollar cost averaged into it just by buying a set amount every month, or if you had the worst timing, so if you bought at the very peak of it. And then so they basically looked at all of these results and they found that obviously if you had perfect timing, that would get you the best. But it's so rare for someone actually to be able to buy at the lowest lows. Uh, whereas if you invest immediately, if you lump sum into it immediately, that was the next best performing. And then dollar cost averaging was the next best performing after that, followed by bad timing. And then the worst of all would be if you didn't invest at all and you just stayed in cash. Um, so I think this is a really interesting analysis and it's definitely in line with what I've learned through my own experience, which is that you probably are better off buying Bitcoin sooner rather than just buying very small amounts, because as Warren Buffett said, time in the market is more important than timing the market. And so in that sense, you probably are better off lump sum investing sooner rather than later. That said, it is important to build conviction over time and to learn more about Bitcoin over time. And so by just putting a small amount in initially and then putting more in as you build more and more conviction, that can be a really good approach so that you don't panic sell once the market goes down by 10% or 30% or 50%. So you do want to align your level of conviction with the amount you have invested. Otherwise, you might be prone to panic and not holding, which is the worst thing you can do of all of these investment strategies. The second step is to hold your own keys to your Bitcoin. You'll often hear Bitcoiners say, not your keys, not your coins. And this is a really important phrase to adhere to because there are several things that could happen where you might not actually end up owning your Bitcoin. For instance, if there was a run on the exchange, just like how there can be a run on the banks where if everyone tries to withdraw their assets all at once, they might not have enough to give to everyone because banks rehypothecate your assets. They lend it out to others. And just like how that's true with dollars, it's also true with Bitcoin exchanges. So that's one possibility. There's also the possibility that the government could pass a law 
that would freeze the ability of people to withdraw their Bitcoin from exchanges. So there is precedent for this. There was Executive Order 6102 under FDR, where they prevented individuals from owning gold and from holding their own gold. They had to exchange their gold for banknotes. And this is something that could potentially happen again in the world of Bitcoin. So you're much better off holding your own keys so that you are in control of your own Bitcoin, you're in control of your own wealth, and you have maximum optionality for however you want to spend that wealth. As far as the question of what's the best hardware wallet to get, the ones I typically recommend are Blockstream Jade. This is a great wallet, especially for beginners. It's really easy to use. It comes from a very reliable company. Blockstream's a great company. It's Bitcoin only. All their software is open source. So this is a great option for a hardware wallet. And it's only 50 bucks. So if you have you know $1,000 worth of Bitcoin, I would say it's definitely worth getting a wallet like this and keeping it in there for extra safety. The other hardware wallet I recommend is Cold Card. This is most beloved by cypherpunks. People who are really into privacy and security love this option. And this is actually the one that I currently use. Either of these are both good options. I wouldn't recommend Trezor or Ledger. Ledger because they have non-Bitcoin cryptocurrencies. So the software is more vulnerable to potential exploitations. Whereas when it's a Bitcoin only hardware wallet, it's very simple. The code is very simple and secure. So there aren't a whole lot of ways that hackers could get into it. Uh, so I wouldn't recommend Ledger for that reason. And Trezor historically has been a solid hardware wallet, but recently they were going to introduce this new AOPP rule where they would actually confirm your identity when you transacted with the hardware wallet. And then once Bitcoiners made a fuss about it, they actually backed down. But I'm still a little hesitant on Trezor because they were going to integrate these AOPP rules. So anyways, long story short, I feel the most comfortable with cold card and Blockstream Jade. I think it's also important for a second just to give an overview of what actually happens when you transact on the Bitcoin time chain. And so you basically send someone Bitcoin to their wallet, and then a miner will include that transaction in the next block. And then the nodes confirm that that transaction is valid and that block is valid. And then the receiver receives the transaction to their wallet within minutes. So these are the various players. There are the actual people who send Bitcoin back and forth to each other's wallets using their keys. There are the miners who create these blocks of transactions so that there is the ledger of all historic Bitcoin transactions is always getting bigger. And I like to think of it as stacking vertically one block on top of the, of the next. Every 10 minutes, there's a new block with all of the most recent Bitcoin transactions. And then the nodes confirm that these transactions are valid. So nodes are pretty much costless to run and you can confirm your own transactions. And that's, that's a really good way to keep the network honest. Another very cool thing about cold storage is that it's really better to think of the hardware wallet as not holding your actual Bitcoin. Your hardware wallet is better thought of as a signing device. That's what you use to actually send and spend your Bitcoin. But your Bitcoin never goes anywhere. It always exists on the time chain. It exists as this ledger, which is basically like an Excel spreadsheet that's shared on everyone who runs a node has this copy of the spreadsheet that has the list of all historic transactions. 
And so really what you're holding on your hardware wallet is the private keys that allow you to send and spend your Bitcoin, to send it to other people, to spend it on various goods and services. And so you can create a backup of your private key on a steel plate so that even if your hardware wallet is destroyed, even if there's a fire in your house or wherever you're keeping it, you have this steel plate with these 12 or 24 words that you can use to recover your entire wealth that you have stored in that Bitcoin hardware wallet. So this is a pretty awesome option. And you can almost think of it as like in the Count of Monte Cristo, how he goes to jail for years and then eventually comes out and finds the treasure and then he's a big successful count. You could literally be thrown in jail. And as long as you memorized your 24 words, you could come out and then be a wealthy man and still have all of your Bitcoin denominated wealth. And an interesting thing about private keys, about the 24 words that you use in your seed recovery phrase, is that they correspond to a string of numbers, a set of ones and zeros. And so you will never see the same seed recovery word that has the first four letters as another seed recovery word, because those first four letters correspond to a certain string of ones and zeros and so it's pretty much impossible for anyone to brute force their way into testing all the various options to figure out your recovery phrase. That's why as long as you have good operational security, you are very secure. You don't have to worry about it. But it is important to say that you don't want to store this recovery phrase anywhere that someone might be able to access it. Certainly not online. Don't take a photo of it. Don't put it in your written notes. You only want to have it in a physical medium. That's why literally carving it into a steel plate is a great option. Uh, you know, paper is option, laminated. There's lots of options for how to keep it safe, but keeping it in the physical world rather than in the digital world where it can be hacked is very important with storing your Bitcoin on your hardware wallet. The third step is to run your own node. So this is not necessary. You certainly don't have to run your own node. But you are helping the ecosystem, so it is a good thing to do. I think it's also good for learning. You can build more conviction by knowing that you have a window into the Bitcoin time chain. You can see all the on-chain transactions. And if you run a Lightning node, you can actually earn some Satoshis by operating that node. So it's kind of a nice pastime to do. And now there are really easy options for how to do it. So for instance, there is Umbral. Anyone can download this onto their computer. If you have an extra laptop laying around, you can download this onto that computer and then run your own node. And essentially then you are someone who can facilitate transactions on the Bitcoin network. An even easier option is this hardware machine called the Bitcoin machine that is already integrated with Umbral. So literally you can buy this, turn it on and immediately it has everything you need. It has the hardware, it has the software. It can immediately allow you to validate transactions with your Bitcoin node and with your Lightning node. And another cool option, certainly not, uh, not mandatory, but you can get one of these Blockstream satellites and Blockstream operates their own satellites in space that broadcast the Bitcoin time chain 24 seven for free. So if there's any kind of interruption, if the internet goes out, people can still transact on the Bitcoin network. The fourth step is an optional step, but I did include it here because it is something that a lot of the more hardcore Bitcoiners are proponents of, and that is mining Bitcoin yourself. 
and or building a non-KYC stack of Bitcoin. And so mining Bitcoin helps to secure the network and the hash rate is the total amount of computing power that is securing the network, that is mining all of the blocks on the network. And you can see here over time how the hash rate has been going up and to the right ever since Bitcoin launched. It had a pretty steep crash when China banned Bitcoin in May of 2021. It hit a low around June of 2021. And now it is higher than ever before. So this shows how resilient the Bitcoin network is, where the hash rate can literally get cut in half. And then within a very short time period, it's already higher than it's ever been before. So here's a geographic breakdown of where most of the Bitcoin hash power is located. You can see it's pretty well dispersed throughout the world. There is the majority of any countries is the United States and then Russia, Australia, South America, Europe. These areas all also have a decent amount. I would say Africa and China have the least amount according to this graphic. And anytime your mining pool gets one of the block rewards, that is evenly distributed based on hash power to everyone who's a member of that pool. All right, now let's talk about the fifth and final step, which is get on zero. It's really interesting how the first step is get off zero and the final step is get on zero. The first step obviously means get off zero Bitcoin, like get off not having any Bitcoin at all. Step five means get on zero fiat, meaning don't have any fiat at all, keep all your wealth in Bitcoin. And this really gets at the core of what the Bitcoin movement is trying to accomplish, which is creating a new monetary system that is not dependent on the legacy system at all, where it really does stand on its own and it creates the next foundation for monetary collaboration across the globe for the next 100 plus years. And if you believe in Bitcoin and you've made it through these first four steps, then the question is, why hold any dollars at all? If Bitcoin goes up, then even if you have to pay capital gains taxes on that, so some percentage of the amount it went up, you have to pay taxes on, even if that happens, you're still better off than if you didn't have that amount in Bitcoin rather than dollars. So then the other argument people will make is, well, if Bitcoin goes down like it did recently and there's a 50% drop and maybe you even have a year long bear market or year and a half long bear market, yes, that is something you have to be prepared for, but everyone who has ever held Bitcoin for at least two years has made more than if they had held in cash. So as long as you have a time horizon of more than two years, you can handle the volatility of it going up and down. And you know maybe you want to have a little bit extra in your rainy day fund just in case that happens in the short term. But in the long term, as long as you have a two plus year time horizon, mathematically, it does make sense to get on zero fiat and keep all your wealth in Bitcoin. And here's the chart of Bitcoin historically since it was launched in 2009. And you can see here that over any two year period, you would have made out by holding Bitcoin rather than dollars. Another reason why getting on zero may make more sense and be less radical than it sounds is because several states are actually taking steps to make Bitcoin legal tender in America. Arizona is one such state the senator introduced a bill recently to make Bitcoin legal tender in Arizona. This means that at least at the state level, you wouldn't have to pay any taxes 
to sell your Bitcoin or to transact with Bitcoin. And so you really could use it just like how you use dollars today for commerce, for paying back your friend, for whatever else you would normally use cash for. Also, Don Huffins is proposing to make Bitcoin legal tender in Texas. He is a candidate for governor of Texas. Greg Abbott is also a big proponent of Bitcoin in Texas. Florida with Francisco Suarez, he is very much in, in favor of Bitcoin. So I think it's quite likely that over the next year or two, we are going to see several states make Bitcoin legal tender in America. And just like how we had El Salvador make Bitcoin legal tender in their country to be the first country in the world, I think we're also going to see several other countries adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. So this can happen much more quickly than I think a lot of people are realizing. So being ready for how you would live in a Bitcoin standard world is worth thinking about now, sooner rather than later. There's a really interesting company out of Austin, Texas called Level, LVL, and this is a Bitcoin-only bank. It's an all-in-one Bitcoin banking app that basically allows you to get on zero, to fully get off the fiat standard onto the Bitcoin standard. So the way it works is, just like how you would have your normal bank, whether it's Chase or Wells Fargo, you have your bank with Level, and you can get your paycheck deposited into Level, you can choose how much of that you want immediately converted to Bitcoin versus keeping it in dollars. And then you also have a credit card associated with those accounts. So you can be on zero fiat and then still use your credit card as you would normally. And then you just pay off your credit card once a month and everything works the same way you normally would with a normal credit card in a normal bank. Only your energy, all of your time and effort that you spend doing what you do in this world is stored in Bitcoin rather than being stored in fiat in US dollars. Another really awesome app once we are on the Bitcoin standard world is Ledin, L-E-D-N. This is a startup company where you can actually have a Bitcoin mortgage. This means you can buy a home with Bitcoin. So rather than trying to sell your Bitcoin when it hits a million or whatever fiat amount you're really excited about it hitting, you can keep your Bitcoin, never sell it, and then instead use some of that Bitcoin as collateral to buy a home. And that way you keep your coins. So if Bitcoin continues to go up, you get to keep all that value. And then you just pay some low interest rate, 5%, 7%, whatever it is per year, so that you get the best of both worlds. You can get the home of your dreams and you get to keep your Bitcoin as it goes up in value. If you're trying to get a loan for something else other than a home, you can also do that already today with Coinbase. You can borrow up to a million dollars and you pay just 8% per year. So personally, the best strategy, in my opinion, is to never sell your Bitcoin. I plan to pass my Bitcoin on to my kids, my grandkids, my great grandkids. And if they need liquidity, they can take out loans against Bitcoin or they can use it as collateral. But that is far superior to actually selling your Bitcoin and then holding dollars, which are essentially like seashells. And at some point, it's quite possible they may not be accepted at all. And while we're on this topic of generational wealth and passing on your wealth to your offspring, there are some really interesting companies that offer multi-signature custody. So for instance, Unchained Capital is one Bitcoin company that I've heard very good things about. NYDIG is another great company in this space where you can create an inheritance plan for your offspring 
through a multi-signature account. And basically the way that works is you can have a three key multi-sig account, you can have a five key multi-sig account, but you have a key, Unchained Capital has a key, and perhaps your spouse has a key or your brother has a key or one other person who you trust, maybe your lawyer or your accountant has the other key. And that way, if anything happens to one person, the other two members can still transact. They can still move the Bitcoin from one wallet to another. So it's a nice way to hedge against if something happens, God forbid, if one person dies or they've lost their key or something like that happens, you still have two other members that can sign transactions. And this is a great way of passing on your Bitcoin to your next of kin. As a conclusion to this episode, I just wanted to provide a few recommendations for additional resources as you make your way down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. It really is bottomless, so there's infinite paths you can explore. I think a great start is 21 Lessons, What I Learned from Falling Down the Bitcoin Rabbit Hole by Gigi. This is a fantastic book. You can get it at 21lessons.com. I very much enjoyed it. It uses a lot of metaphors with Alice in Wonderland. The Bullish Case for Bitcoin by Vijay Boyapati, uh, with a foreword by Michael Saylor. This is also a fantastic book. Both of these books are very short, so they're really easy to read. I think you could read each of them in a day. And so these are great intro books that I always recommend if you just want a lay of the land of what the case is for Bitcoin in general. As more of an in-depth overview, when you really want to know the ins and outs of the history of the financial system and why Bitcoin matters, on historic timescales. I would certainly recommend The Bitcoin Standard by Seyfedean Amos. I would also recommend The Fiat Standard by Seyfedean Amos. Uh, this is a book that came out within the last year and I absolutely loved it. I did an episode on this, so you can also listen to the Hence the Future episode on The Fiat Standard. And this is a great YouTube video from Ross Stevens of NYDIG. It's called The Beauty of Bitcoin, Ross Stevens. So I recommend this if you are more of a traditional person, maybe your whole life you've had the 60-40 stock bond portfolio and it feels very scary to move into this Bitcoin world and you're not so sure. Or you have a parent or loved one that has that more traditional finance mindset. I would definitely recommend this video because he comes from the world of traditional finance and he realized how revolutionary Bitcoin was and he does a great job of explaining the case for it not only for individuals, but also for corporations, for businesses, for keeping Bitcoin in your treasury. So I would recommend this and the other books I mentioned, uh, all great resources for getting started with Bitcoin. We're gonna talk about well, I think that's a good place to end it. Thank you all for tuning in and I'll see you next time.